I want us to turn, turn this morning to the book of Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, and this will end our discussion on spiritual warfare and encouraging, encouraging confidence in the midst of it. And my, my, my thought this morning is this. I want to look at Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3 as a means by which we find strength to stand. Okay, because that's the command that comes up four times in Ephesians 6. This, this call to stand, stand, stand firm, having done everything, stand. And we all know, and I think we'll admit at some level, that we know what it is to be susceptible at some level to forms of discouragement in our hearts. Uh, discouragement that comes from overwhelming circumstances, discouragement that comes from delay in response to the prayers that we offer up to God. So we all know at various personal levels that struggle. This text, Ephesians 3, I think is fascinating because in verse 13, which ends a, a kind of a, a mini break in Paul's prayer, it, it's fascinating if you look at it. If you look at verse 1, it says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ, for the sake of you. And then he goes into an 11-verse detour from what he's about to do. Okay, what he's about to do, what he's beginning to do, is to pray for the blessings of the doctrinal foundation of Ephesians 1 to 3 to rest strongly on the heart of the believers in Ephesus so that they will, by the time they get to the end of the book, find themselves experiencing a God-given capacity to stand in the face of the struggle that is called the Christian life. He's asking this for them. But it's fascinating because, and you might find this when you, you sit down to pray, sometimes you start praying and your mind goes off on something else and then you come back, okay? I think that is probably a universal experience amongst Christians. It's fascinating to me that one of those events of digression of thinking occurs and happens in the pages of Scripture to the Apostle Paul, and he records it for us. So when I start reading in verse 1, he says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ, for the sake of you Gentiles, and then 2 to 13 is a detour, verse 14, For this reason I bow before the Father. So for an 11-verse detour, he's off exalting in the glory of God and bringing this new thing about called the church of Jesus Christ that he's about to pray for. But as he kneels before the Father, he senses this desire to communicate to the church in Ephesus, how absolutely and utterly precious they are to God as almost in a sense his new tribe, his new people made up of Jew and Gentile drawn together by the power and blood of Christ. He wants them to know who they are. And then there's something else that I think is fascinating. Verse 13, he says, I ask therefore that you not be discouraged because of my suffering for you which are your glory. Okay, and I, I focused on that word glory, which my sufferings are your glory. And start contemplating, what is, what is the glory of God? The glory of God is the, just the eminent success that he experiences in all things because of who he is, right? So there's a sense in which I don't have glory like that. I don't have eminent success and perpetual success in everything I do, but God does. Paul takes that word now and applies it to the believers in Ephesus. He says, don't be discouraged because of what I'm going through. Rather, be encouraged because my sufferings are for your glory. Okay, and that just leaves you saying, well, in, in what sense does Paul mean that his sufferings are for their glory? And I think if you go back to verse 1 of chapter 3, he says, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ... 
And then when you get to chapter 13, he says, do not be discouraged because of my sufferings for you. It's fascinating, isn't it? The sufferings of Christ are the means by which we find utter forgiveness. The sufferings of believers for each other are the means by which we encourage each other to the success that God wants us to experience by the power of His Spirit. Paul understood that there was a connection between the progress, the growth, the movement of the church in Ephesus and his sufferings. His fear was this, that they would get kind of down in the dumps because Paul was in prison, that they would be overwhelmed with, if you will, regret that, oh, he was doing that for us and now he's in prison and they would feel somewhat responsible. Paul says, don't feel that way. Don't be discouraged Instead, I want you to be encouraged because my sufferings, and here's the way this works in the, in the original, it's my sufferings are to the advantage of you. Your growth, your progress as you're watching my life is what encourages me. And Paul says, in light of that, I am willing to suffer anything for your benefit. Now, is that, now that's the man that's now going to fall on his knees and beg Father in heaven to help them to be everything that they can possibly be. Last week we looked at, if you will, kind of the pattern of Paul's prayer in Ephesians 6 and the pattern that he encourages for all believers. When you come to this passage, it's the content of what Paul is asking for believers. And I think you will find that just three pieces of this content that we'll cover this morning will be deeply encouraging to you. I want you to focus as we move into this prayer on the posture with which Paul prays. Verse 13, he says, for this, or verse 14, he says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. Now, from our perspective, we don't find that surprising. Okay, but in, in, in the Hebrew culture at the time of Christ, and even today, if you go to the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem and watch the religious people in prayer, you know how they pray? They pray standing. Okay, Luke chapter 18, the Pharisee and the publican come to the temple to pray. How do they pray? The Pharisee prays standing, extending his hands out to heaven. Customary position for prayer. So Paul is, in a sense, heightening the sense of concern that he has for these people, moving from a customary position of standing to kneeling, which was an extraordinary, if you will, unusual expression of passion and desire for them. You've probably experienced this in your own Christian life. Times when discouragement and brokenness and fear have come over your heart and when you pray, you find yourself falling to your knees. Why? Because the need that you're experiencing is at some level extraordinary or at least it is clear that your need is extraordinary. For these people, Paul says, when I think about your needs and the potential for discouragement and my desire to see you strengthened, he says, I fall to my knees. And remember Jesus Christ in the garden under the extraordinary circumstances of the cross. He goes into the garden and he falls on his face before God. Remember Acts chapter 20 when Paul leaves this group of believers in Ephesus. You know what it says? On the beach, they fell to their knees and they prayed. Okay, so what, what you find here is an extraordinary session of prayer that Paul is experiencing and participating in for the sake of the believers in a place called Ephesus where they are being tempted to be discouraged. I imagine Paul, by a Roman soldier, bending his knee, 
falling on his knees on behalf of the believers in Ephesus. And I imagine how those soldiers must have responded to this extraordinary man of God expressing on behalf of others an extraordinary passion to see them grow and to see them complete it. And I wonder in my own heart what the effect of that must have been as he hits his knees in their presence. The question I want us to ask this morning is how do we overcome defeat and discouragement? What does Paul pray and request and desire for the believers in Ephesus as he falls to his knees on their behalf for the sake of Remembering that he has suffered dramatically and deeply for their advantage, for their encouragement. Let's move our way through this text. Verse 15, I'm just going to read through verse 18 for you this morning. For this reason I bow before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep, perhaps one of the most well-known texts in Scripture, how deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that goes beyond explanation, that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to all the measure of the fullness of God. I think Paul is expressing here, and we'll just cover three simple desires, three simple requests that Paul lifts up to the Father for these believers. The first one, I think, is this. He wants them to be assured of their Heavenly Father's affection. He wants them to know how much God loves them. interesting in verse 15 he says I bow before the father from whom his entire family in heaven and on earth derives its name okay now the idea here is this God has created the church by the power of his spirit that which an individual creates they have the right to name the children of God the family of God the household of faith okay and so as Paul talks to the church, he wants them to know that they have God as their creator. The church is his idea. We owe our very physical existence and spiritual existence to him. And as a result, we also owe to him our utter and complete allegiance. Which is why Revelation 4, verse 11 says, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power because you created all things and by your will they exist and have their being. So as we come before God to experience his affection, to claim and to own his affection as a personal relationship with us, Paul wants them also to realize that they come because he is their creator. So they come with a degree of allegiance because he is the creator, but they also come because he is their father. Paul says, from whom his whole family Now, when I think of this, I think of a father's relationship to his family. A family is the father's unique object of affection. Okay, a dad experiences an overwhelming sense of responsibility to protect, to provide for, to plan for, to direct his family. 
And as Paul writes to them, he wants them to know that they have a father in heaven who has an affectionate disposition towards them. Whether it is the family that is in heaven, verse 15, or on earth, that is believers who have died and already gone on before us, or those of us who are left behind to serve and honor him. Okay, his entire family is made by, is created by him. In Ephesians 2.19, Paul puts it this way. He says, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but you are of God's household. You are his family. And as a result of that being family, you have a unique affection from God and you have unique privileges from God. I, I thought of, of this this morning. I, I thought of my own family relationship with my daughters, my wife and I with our daughters. My daughters have an assumption. Okay, their assumption is this. Being family means certain privileges. Okay, being family means rights and privileges, expectations that they have because we are their parents. And the, the figure or the analogy that Paul's using to encourage the churches, as you go through your discouraging times, you have a father who is in heaven. Don't forget his affection towards you. That relationship grants you certain privileges to bring before him needs, desires, and requests. And, and I think as most parents know, children aren't shy about this. Okay? After church today, you'll probably be talking to someone and their child will be downright rude. Okay? And interrupt you as you talk to their father or mother. And they won't feel typically any hesitation about it. A parent has to train their child that, you know, along with the privileges come responsibilities to use that in a respectful way. But they, they, they come in an unhindered way. My daughters, when they get home from school, don't say, oh, Dad, I know we've been away for a couple months. Can I go up to my bedroom? Okay, and if they did, I would say, there would be a sense in which I would be offended because I would say, is there some sense in which you misunderstand the relationship? When you walk in the doors of this house, you have access to everything that's here. Okay, you can go in the pantry and go after the treats that mommy buys for herself on a weekly basis. And you can even eat some of them and she won't be offended. Okay, it's that, that's rude because my wife has a box of something in the pantry. It's her special treat. Okay, and I occasionally, honey, I do sneak some. Okay, I confess my sins before my brothers and sisters. My, my daughters don't feel any sense of shame. They, it's that experience, some, some degree of, there's a boldness sometimes to kids. My parents' house. About a month ago, hadn't seen my parents for a while, and I just called them and said, I'm inviting myself to come to your house. And I expected that I would be met if they were available with a, we would love to have you come. Why? Because it is a parental relationship that brings with it very certain privileges. You know what Paul wants these people to know? God called you into his family. You are no longer a foreigner, an alien, a stranger. You are of his household. And I know that I... If I had a need, I could call my parents today and say, I need to come down and spend time with you. And they would say, we would love to have you come. Why? Because it's my dad. It's my mom. There is this prerogative that children experience in relationships with their father that is absolutely precious. Folks, do you know this in your relationship with God? Do you focus on this assurance of the father's affection? Is it, is it any wonder that Jesus in the Lord's Prayer would say to us, when you pray, Pray like this. 
Our Father who art in heaven. Translated into many Americans' prayers, how do we say that? Our Heavenly Father. And sometimes I used to wonder, where did that come from, our Heavenly Father? Because it's a very common way to begin our prayer. And I thought of it this week, as we say our Father, we're saying our Heavenly Father, the one who lives in heaven, but who has an affectionate disposition towards His children, who have certain privileges as a result of a relationship, please understand this, that He initiated. He adopted us into His family. He took full responsibility for our success in the Christian So folks, the first thing I think that we need to do is this. We need to allow ourselves to become assured of God's affection. And as a result, we will come to him, knowing him as father, with boldness. Perhaps this morning you don't know Christ. You say, Pastor Tim, when I go to pray, there's a a distance, there's a vagueness, there's a lack of affection and relationship. I would beg of you to come to God on your knees, acknowledging your sin, and receive him as your heavenly father who through the blood of His Son will cleanse you from your sin and draw you into a, an incredible, affectionate relationship. And church, I just say this to you. Enjoy this relationship. It doesn't demean God. It is a title that He has given to Himself. He is your Father who created you. But don't let the fact that He is Creator, deserving of all glory and honor, keep you from accessing Him through the rights of sons and daughters of God. You are His household. You are his children. And as every one of you as a parent feels towards your child, God feels like that towards you without any bitterness, without any resentment, with an utterly perfect love. May that thought encourage our hearts. And it's what Paul, Paul says, I want you to know him as your father. Secondly, in verse 16, <clears throat> he says this, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in the inner man or in your inner being at the heart of who you are okay know the affection of your father second thought that i just impress upon you this morning is this allow yourself to be strengthened by the spirit to defeat the discouragement that is prevalent in our lives okay allow yourself to be Strengthened by the Spirit so that you can defeat the discouragement that is so prevalent. When Paul says this, he says, verse 16, he says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he will strengthen you. That word literally means this. It means to fortify. It means to brace. It means to invigorate with his power. You know what he's saying? Surrender to God. Give all of your life to Him. Let Him fortify you. Let Him brace you. Let Him strengthen you. Let Him encourage you in the face of the discouragement that is so prevalent in many of our lives. Now, why should you trust God by His Spirit to defeat discouragement in your life? That's the question I think that comes up. Listen to what he says in verse 16. He says, I pray that God, out of His glorious riches may strengthen you. When the Bible says God's glorious riches in the context of his strength, power, and capacities, what is he referring to? I pray that out of his glorious riches, out of his, and we would know this, out of his infinite capacities, that he would strengthen you 
according to his abundant and limitless provision. This is a promise that I believe should give to us incredible optimism. As we approach the Father, we are never experiencing a circumstance that is beyond his capacity to deal with it. Okay, think back to Luke chapter 24. Disciples on the road to Emmaus. Think back to Luke chapter 23. The disciples hearing the accounts of the resurrection, experiencing severe doubt. Why? Because that, in their minds, they're thinking, that kind of thing does not happen. I think it's interesting that Paul, in verse 19 of chapter 1, if you just flip back a page, he would say this. He would talk about his incomparably great power for us who believe that power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. What is he saying? That power that is abundant, that comes out of his glorious riches, okay, has defeated your worst fear. Which means he can handle whatever you're experiencing in your life today. Whatever concern, whatever fear is discouraging your heart as you seek to trust God and to rest in His affection, He wants you to know that He has the capacity. He can strengthen you by His Spirit to defeat whatever discouragement is in your heart because He gives, and see if this makes sense, He gives according to His riches, which are limitless. He gives according to them, like them. So that when God reaches out to meet a need in Ryan Duvenek's life, it's not like he has now less resources to give from. Why? Because the resources that he's giving from are infinite in terms of their magnitude. Okay? Uh, If if I think of people like uh, John D. Rockefeller or uh, Warren Buffett or Bill Gates, and I say, okay, they gave from their riches. Okay? And some of them have given in Ways that to me are fairly dramatic and enormous. Thankful for that kind of sacrifice, that kind of giving. Okay, but when Bill Gates gave $20 billion out of his $50 billion, does he have the same amount left over? No, he, why? Because his resources, though enormous from a human perspective, are in fact finite. God doesn't give to you out of his resources. He gives according to his resources. So that after he has met your need today, tomorrow he is not less able to meet your needs. Do you see? So that that there is never a diminishing of capacity on the part of God. Because you think about this. You think of the enormous number of people on planet earth that cry out to God on a Sunday morning in prayer. It should be astonishing to you that he is capable of responding to all of those needs. After he has responded to all of them later in the same day. Okay? And another continent. He is just as able to respond to the prayers that are being offered up. That is an amazing and encouraging thought. He he wants to give to you according to his resources. He wants to fortify, brace, and invigorate your faith. And this, for Christians, should give great optimism. It is an amazing statement because the resources at his disposal are limited. Is it any wonder that Jesus would say, ask and you shall receive? And he puts no time limit on it. Like, you know what? You better get that request into him because soon the foundation is going to run out of money. It's no, he gives according to, not out of, but according to because his...
capacity never diminishes. And then is it any wonder that in Philippians 4.19, Paul would say something like this. And my God shall supply all your needs according to his, and here it is again, his glorious riches that are made available through Christ. Do you see? So go to him. And when you come to him, don't act like you're talking to a pauper. You're talking to the king of kings who has infinite resources. Ask large things of him. Ask him for strength in the battle that you're facing today that has been long and drawn out. Ask him for assistance. Ask him for power. Because he gives out of what we call limitless resources. How does he do it? He does it by the Spirit. Okay, so Ephesians 5.18 says this, be being filled with the Spirit, because the Spirit of God is the means by which God unleashes His power in the life of believers. And He wants to do it over and over and over again. Read through the book of Acts and watch how the limitless power of God is affecting the life of those that are walking in the Spirit, trying to accomplish things that they can't do in their own strength. Over and over and over again, you will find that they are filled with boldness by the Spirit. And He just regularly is supporting them as they walk in the path of obedience. When does He give us out of His abundant resources? And I think this is a very important question for us to ask. When can we tap into and be strengthened by the Spirit to defeat discouragement? I think the simple answer to that question is this. When we act in faith and obey God in circumstances that are beyond our capacity, it is then that we experience the power of God. So I challenge you. Are you asking things from God that require an evidence of His Spirit in your life? Or are you shying away from those larger things because they intimidate you? If you're intimidated by life circumstances, please understand this, okay? And I say this to myself. I have a small view of God's power. I think that He gives out of, not according to. His resources, His capacities, are limitless. It's why David in First Chronicles 29 would say something like this. David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly saying, praise be to you, O Lord, God, our Father of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Why? Yours is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and on earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and to give strength to all. A limitless provision from an almighty God. That is what Paul wants the believers in Ephesus to experience. And when we act in faith, in obedience to the directive of God, we will experience this unique blessing and abundance from God. I can't help, when I look at this text, to think about a Uh, an individual that we studied in adult Sunday school class a few weeks ago. I think of David as a little, theoretically speaking, a young man, okay, who did not have visible qualities that would suggest that he would be a mighty warrior or even a king. And so when Samuel comes to the family of Jesse to find the one that God wants to anoint as king, where's David? David isn't even invited to the party. He's out keeping the sheep. Samuel gets, gets done looking at six of the sons of Jesse, and he says, none of these are the ones that God has chosen. Do you have another son? Yeah, but he's out keeping the sheep, which means what? He's the least likely person to be chosen by God. 
But David steps up to the plate in, a, in, a, in an incredible way. Is anointed by God to be the future king of Israel. But as a young man, there is this encounter with a man, a, an incredible, enormous warrior from the Philistines named Goliath. And David comes to the battlefield. After 40 days, the Philistine has taunted the armies of Israel and its prize king, Saul, who is head and shoulders above everybody else. But Saul doesn't experience the power of the Spirit. He has grieved the Spirit of God and he feels unable to attack and to go and do what he should do. David comes, and here's what David says to Saul. In a sense, this seems like arrogance. Okay, either it's arrogance or great faith. It's one of the two. He says to Saul, this, looking up to this tall king, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul's immediate re reply is this. You are not able to go out against the Philistines and fight him. You are only a boy. He has been fighting as a man from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it and struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned to me, I seized it by its hair and struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. Why, David? Because he has defied the armies of the living God, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. Here's Saul's response. Go. And the Lord be with you. He moves from saying, David, I'm not going to let you go. It is ridiculous that you would go. David expresses his deep trust in the power of God. And what, it, it affects this proud, arrogant king who can't go out and fight to the degree that he says, David, you go and the Lord be with you. The Philistine responds to David. He says, come here and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin. I come against you, listen to this, in the name of the Lord. I thought of this as we were singing this morning. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. We run into it and are safe. David is not moving out there in his flesh. David is moving out into the circumstances realizing that the Strength of the Spirit of God will defeat this opponent for Israel. I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel. And the Lord Almighty is just this infinite picture of His infinite resources. And David's response to, the, to Goliath is, you have defied Him. This day the Lord will hand you over to me. I'm not going to defeat you. This day God will do the impossible. You know who God does the impossible for, folks? People that walk in faith and in simple obedience to the call of God. And when you step out to do the impossible, God will give to you from His infinite resources and make you able to do what you could not do on your own. And I want to tell you something. I don't imagine that David that day was a proud man or a sad man. I imagine that David was incredibly humbled by what God did and very happy to have been used in such a powerful way. Do you have joy in your heart that comes as a result of a simple response of obedience to the promptings of the Spirit of God so that the power of God may rest upon you? A power that He gives according to His full capacities. One writer puts it this way. He says, when we are filled with the Spirit of God, we are frail containers that are pulsating with divine power. You know what David was? 
And I, I really look, I bet David is thinking, what did I get myself into? He was a frail vessel, but he was pulsating with divine power. Folks, what are you discouraged about that you need to go to God with and say, God, I must, I need to walk in obedience. And as I walk in obedience, I'm going to trust that by the Spirit, you're going to give me the strength to do what I need to do. And I'm going to go out there and I am afraid. I know my capacities are weak, but I'm going to trust that through this frail vessel, you're going to cause divine power to pulsate and to make a difference for your glory. What are you running from? What challenge, what circumstance does God want you to move into? Not in your strength. Because you're discouraged by it and you're avoiding it. And God wants you to move into it and to work in it for His glory as you rest in His infinite power that He wants to give you according to His resources which are limitless and infinite. And undiminished as He seeks to help us as we walk in obedience. Are you being strengthened by the Spirit to defeat discouragement in your life? Paul says, when I fall to my knees, I pray that you will rest in the Spirit of God. And as you rest, He will encourage your heart. And Paul will later say this in 2 Corinthians 4.16. He will say, therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly, we are decaying. Because inwardly, we are being renewed day by day. According to His infinite resources. Paul was pouring his life out. But until the very last day, he felt a power from God in the face of decreasing capacities, humanly speaking. Paul said, I am dying. Ministry has been hard. Remember his story. Beaten, left for dead, stoned at Lystra. His body is breaking apart. You know what he says? But inwardly, there is this rich strength from God. May God help us to know this so that the glory and honor from all victory in our Christian life goes to Him. The last thought that I want to share with you is the beginning of verse 17. Notice what Paul says. He says, I want you to be strengthened by the Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. What does this mean? So that Christ may Dwell in your heart through faith. One question that comes to mind as I read this text is this. Paul, doesn't Christ indwell every believer? It, isn't he living in every Christian? 1 Corinthians 6.19 Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, that you have from God, and you are not your own because you were bought with a price? Romans chapter 8 or 9, I forget the exact text. If a man does not have the Spirit of God, he does not belong to him. Isn't there, Paul, a sense in which Christ abides in the heart of every believer by the work of the Spirit? And I think the answer to that, very clearly from the rest of Scripture, is an affirmative. But this indwelling of Christ in our hearts is also spoken of as a thing of degrees, if you will. Meaning, I may not be as full of the Spirit of Christ and as full of Christ as I ought to be because there are things in my life that are hindering or working against the fullness of the Spirit which brings the presence of Christ. So I'll find two times in Scripture, Ephesians 4 and verse 30, in the context, don't grieve the Spirit of God. And then in 1 Thessalonians, he will say something like this, don't quench 
the Spirit of God. Don't throw a wet blanket over the fire and work of the Spirit in your life. So, Paul can say, if you walk in obedience and are strengthened by the Spirit in the face of discouragement, then the result will be this. Christ will dwell in your heart. There's two words in the Greek language that could be used. One speaks of a temporary residence, if you want to think of renting a hotel room. Okay? The other word is to make your home as a permanent resident. When I'm away on vacation, get talking to someone, they may say to me, where are you staying? What is your residence as you, your temporary place of abode while you are here? And the word that's used here is, where do you live? Okay, and we, we, we automatically and instinctively know the difference. And in the Greek language, there's two words. One could be, where are you staying? One could be, where do you live? Here, Paul uses the word that Christ may live as a permanent resident in your heart. So the thought that starts to come to mind is the title of a book from a few years ago called My Heart, Christ, Home. And I think this text begs a question. It begs a very serious question in relationship to discouragement in the Christian life. Can Christ come and abide, live, be at home in your heart? Okay, because I think it is clear in Scripture that there are things that so grieve the Spirit of God that though He is present, He is not welcome there. The analogy from the book, My Heart, Christ Home, it uses the analogy of a house, a physical house as a, if you will, a metaphor for the Christian life, an individual's life. It talks about Christ moving through the various rooms of the house and then coming to closets that are padlocked shut. And Christ begs entrance into that closet and the individual resists. And the result is that it, that, that, that dwelling place is not Christ's home in the way or to the degree that He wants it to be. And the result for the Christian is this. We are vulnerable to discouragement when we harbor sin in our hearts that keeps Christ from being at home in us. And what Paul says, he says, I want, I want you to know Christ at home in your hearts. I want Him to strengthen you with this power through the indwelling Spirit so that Christ will be at home, will be comfortable, will abide in a more and more fuller sense. The question I think we have to ask ourselves is, does the Spirit of Christ fill every believer? I think the answer based on Ephesians 5.18 in the context is that though He is in every believer, He does not fill every believer. Because Ephesians 5.18 is a command to Christians. Be filled with the Spirit. Which means what? Okay, It's in the passive. Allow surrender so that the Spirit can begin to fill every part of your life. Folks, look, for all of us, there, there are things in our lives that we easily find ourselves surrendering to God. And then there are areas where we struggle. Some people struggle in relationship to their attitude towards their children. Some people struggle with their relationships towards co-workers. Some people struggle in their relationship to their mate for various reasons. Okay, what is Paul saying? Let Christ invade Settle down. Be at home in every part of your life. Okay, when someone visits our house and, and it's someone that we want to feel comfortable, okay, and they're, let's say they're staying overnight, okay, we just want them to, hey, just be like family. 
Okay, you know, you say, hey, if you want to get a drink, go ahead and get a drink. If, when you get up in the morning, if you want to get some cereal, go in the closet and get some cereal. What are you saying? Just go. Be, I, we want you to settle down here and be at home in this place. Is that your attitude towards Christ? Because when he comes, and, and here's the thing I think is fascinating. He is king of kings and lord of lords, right? He comes to abide. So here's the last thought that I want to share with you this morning. Okay? Paul wants us to experience intimacy with Christ. That intimacy comes how? Through full surrender. Partial surrender will never result in intimacy. It's true in all of your relationships. Okay, it is only when you fully relinquish all of your life to another person, you can say, we are experiencing intimacy. Because intimacy indicates this idea of knowing more and more completely. Christ wants to know your life completely. He wants you to unlock every door in your life so that He can, can come in and rule in your life. That's why I'm using the word surrender. That He may abide not only as your Savior from sin, but as the Lord of your life. He doesn't come for a visit. He comes into your life to be in charge. And when He is... I've never found a Christian who says, you know, I'm so discouraged because Christ is controlling every part of my life. You, it would be ridiculous. I asked this from God. I said, God, I want you to fill every part of my life. I want to know your power. Paul prays this for them, that Christ may settle down, that he may become not a visitor in your life, but resident king in your life. And without that, the Christian experiences consistently some degree of persistent discouragement. Why? Because I'm fighting against the one who loved me and gave himself for me. How could I be happy fighting against the will and purposes of Christ? And the answer is very simple. I can't be. A conflicted, rebellious Christian who is not surrendering every part of their life to Christ, to Christ is experiencing some sort of dissonance or lack of intimacy in their relationship with Christ. And they don't have the happiness that they could have if they were fully surrendered. When I think back in my life to, to the age of 21, not walking in the way that God wanted me to walk, and the incredible relief that came on the moment of surrender, it is an unbelievable thing to find God breaking you from patterns of rebellion and sin. And it is always a brokenness that is deep that leads to a deeper joy. He wants to defeat patterns of sin in your life. He wants to give you a heart to love your kids, to love your mate, to honor your parents, young people. He wants to give you that kind of a heart. He comes to take charge. Okay, he's not like a guest. He comes as king. Even though he is your savior. Now think about that. He is your friend, John 15. He is your savior. But he is also Lord of your life. And until I accept him in that kind of a way and surrender my life to him in that kind of a way, I will experience a lack of intimacy and joy in Christ. Surrender in your heart will bring intimacy with Christ. His presence, however, and this is a beautiful thing, His presence always brings His power. Ask yourself this question this morning, would you? Is your life free from hindrances to the fullness of Christ? 
Now see, the answer to that question, only you know, and Christ knows. Why? Because all things are naked and open before his eyes. So I may think the closet's locked, but he sees through the door. And I will not experience the fullness of Christ in my life until I unlock the door and expose whatever it is in my life that needs to be exposed so that he can cleanse and free and empower. So I beg of you this morning, would you look at your life and just according to this prayer, am I assured of the Father's affection? Do I sense this morning that in light of a need that I may be beginning to sense that I can go to him and that he will hear me? Do I know this degree of boldness? Can I, Hebrews 4, 16, come boldly to the throne of grace? Now, if you've never trusted Christ, here's what you're going to find. You may come to God for help and assistance, but you're going you're to sense that the door is closed, that there is not this privilege of relationship because you have not yet been born again by the grace of God. And if that's where you are today, you say, Pastor, I have been trying to access God's power, but I am finding no success. Then you have to ask yourself, is the Spirit of God there? Have you been born again by the Spirit of God as a result of seeing your rebellion, putting that rebellion under the blood of Christ by faith, and then Him coming in and dwelling and empowering your life? Paul can pray this prayer with confidence because he knows this is the will of God. Okay, every prayer you pray according to the will of God is going to be answered. You go to God and say, God, I need power for this day. I'm going to guarantee you something. That is a prayer in accordance with his will. You go to Jesus and you say, Jesus, I want you to fill my life today. I believe that is a prayer that he will answer every day. Here's what's fascinating. This text is, do you notice this? It is Trinitarian. The Father is at work. The Spirit is at work. The Son is at work. Isn't that beautiful? All three persons of the Godhead unleashed to support, to love you, to strengthen you, to dwell with you. What incredible resources our Father has made available for us. I would argue that only a fool would not avail himself of such things. What discouragement does God want you to defeat by faith and trust in him? What circumstance does he want to remove from your life by the power of his spirit? What impossible situation have you been ignoring that would be possible if you trusted God? What relationship does he desire to restore in your life? Will you pray? Will you go to the throne of heaven as a privileged child and say, God, I beg of you in the authority of the blood of Christ to meet this need in my life, to come and fill and empower and strengthen me. I'm mindful of an old song called He Giveth More Grace. Because I think the bottom line here is all of these blessings flow out of the grace of God. The psalmist or the writer says it this way, and I sung this song as a kid. It is very precious. It says, when we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength is gone ere the day is half done, when we've reached the end of our hoarded resources, the Father's full giving has only begun. His love has no limit. His grace, no measure. His power has no boundary known unto man. For out of his, and according to, his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Can I encourage you this morning? Flee to him to find grace to help in your time of need.
And I believe that this is a prayer that he will certainly answer for you today. He wants to, he aims to, by the power of the Spirit, by his infinite power, by the work of Christ indwelling, he aims to destroy discouragement in your life and to fill you with confidence and boldness as you surrender to him. Father, 